The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. About karma and its influence on how to understand the Brahma-viharas, in particular metta, <clears throat> but all four, what it means to develop goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity for ourselves and for other beings in the light of the teaching on karma. There are two other points that are relevant, or where karma has an influence on this. One is on working on the motivation to develop these Brahma-viharas. It's because these a limitless goodwill does not come automatically. We have to work on developing them. And, we have, and to work on them developing them, you have to have motivation. And then the final point will be on the means for actually developing those attitudes, using the processes of fabrication, the way you breathe, the way you think, the way you perceive and feel things, to actually bring these attitudes about. In terms of motivation, the primary motivation that the Buddha points to is heedfulness, you know, knowing that because your actions have the potential either for creating happiness or for creating a lot of harm, you have to be very careful about what you're going to do and say and think. And that's what heedfulness means, is having a sense of danger. By the sense that the dangers can be avoided if you're careful. I mean, if the dangers could not be avoided, then heedfulness would have no meaning at all. I mean, you would just have to give in willingly to whatever's coming on. If there were no dangers, you wouldn't have to be careful. you just do what you like. So it's a combination of knowing that your actions have the power for good or for evil, that you've got to be heedful. And it's interesting, the Buddha makes this the basis for all skillful qualities. There's one point where he says, this is the basis for all skillful qualities. Just as the footprint of the elephant contains, can contain all the other footprints, heedfulness contains all of the good qualities within it and acts as their basis. So again, he's not saying that it's because of your innate goodness that you are going to be good, or because of your innate purity. It's because you see that your actions have, have consequences and you want to be careful about them. That's what motivates you to want to do the skillful thing. In particular, you notice that if your happiness is going to be lasting, it cannot depend on the suffering of other people. There's a story I've told before, and I'll probably tell it again many times. King Basenadi in the palace with his queen, and in a tender moment he turns to her and he says, is there anyone in the world you love more than yourself? And you know what he's expecting. Yes, Your Majesty, of course you. And, <laughs> but Queen Malika, she's no fool. I mean, <laughs> she says, no, there's nobody I love more than myself. How about you? Is there anybody you love more than yourself? <laughs> so that's the end of that scene. Um, <laughs> the king goes down to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, yeah, she's right. Um, you could search the whole world over and never find anybody you love more than your own self. And the same way other beings are all, all have the same fierce love for themselves. And so the conclusion he draws is interesting. It's not that you should just go ahead and try to fight everybody off for happiness. He says you should never harm anyone. Now this can be thought of in two ways. One is just the sense of sympathy. You realize my desire of sympathy for happiness is something I see in other people. There's a sympathetic reaction. And then secondly, if my happiness depends on their suffering, they're not going to stand for it. They're not going to say, oh, he's a wonderful being or she's a wonderful being and just kind of let, him, let you get, ahead, get away with things. If it's making them suffer, they're going to fight. So if you want your happiness to be lasting, you have to take other people's happiness into consideration as well. Heathfinless um, also says, you know, your happiness depends on the qualities of your actions. And if you can't trust yourself to have goodwill motivating your actions, you are in a dangerous position. You know, if you're, 
ill will could flash up at any point, you might end up doing something you're really going to regret. So you want to consciously develop goodwill in areas where it is difficult. It also makes you reflect on your attitude of why you would want to have goodwill, even for people who are behaving badly. Okay? You don't want to focus on the bad things that they have done to you. You want to look at the situation as to, what can I do to get the most positive thing out of this person? The most positive reaction, perhaps it might be, and what can I look at this as an opportunity for me to behave skillfully, even if I can't get the other person to behave skillfully? One of the passages that we'll be looking at where the Buddha talks about, you see someone who's behaved poorly to you, you try to, you treat it as the same case as when you're coming across the desert, you're hot, you're trembling, you're thirsty, you see a little bit of water in a cow's footprint, and you know that if you got down to slurp, uh, um, excuse me, you get, tried to scoop it up in your hands, you would muddy the water. So you have to get down and slurp it up. Now if someone were to come and take a picture of you at that point, this part is not in the, the original, <laughs> But what would you look like? You'd be down on your hands and he's slurping up water out of the dirt, basically. doesn't look good, but you need it. So you say, I don't care if it looks good or looks bad. In the same way, if someone's been behaving really wrongly to you, but you behave in a noble manner, some people will say, hey, he's just a weakling, doesn't, or she's just a weakling, doesn't know how to fight for him or herself. And you, have, you say, I don't care, I want to do the skillful thing. And you have to look at the situation that way. In the same way the Buddha says, someone's been treating you wrongly, you have to look at, well, what, what's the good in, in their treatment, or the way they've been behaving to me? There must be something good. Maybe they're saying horrible things, but maybe they're acting in a good way, or vice versa. Or even if the person has nothing good at all, you have to feel sorry for them. And here the Buddha gives the image of, you're, you're, again, you're walking across the desert and you find someone sick on the side of the road. And your, your immediate reaction is kind of basic human reaction. You see somebody ill out in a horrible place like that, you know, you want to help. So either way, whether they have any good to them or no good to them at all, you want to help. And so you try to look at the situation, you hold these images in mind as a way of reminding yourself, okay, it doesn't really matter what the person has done in the past, I've got to maintain my goodwill. If I can find some goodness in that person, that makes it easier for me to have goodwill for the person. And if I have no, can't find anything good, then you've got to have compassion. Have I told you the about the New Yorker cartoon with the two poodles at the bar? Two lady poodles at a bar. Yeah, you can tell because they have, you know, eye, eye makeup and lipstick. And they both have <laughs> and both have these really disgusted expressions on their faces. And one of them is saying, they're all sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> If everybody is a son of a bitch, what are you? You know, because <laughs> if that's all you see in human beings is their their horrible things they've done, it's very very difficult to act in a good way to them to have goodwill. You've got to look for their goodness, which means that's why the Buddha compares this to water. I mean, this is what waters your soul, waters your heart. Remember, there are good qualities to other beings. It makes it a lot easier. Again, it's not a question of how much they deserve, but in terms of motivating yourself, it's a lot easier to feel good when if you can see some good in other, pe other people. Also, the Buddha talks about how developing goodwill is beneficial to you right in the present moment. It calms the mind down. There's a list of what they, they, what they call the, the 11 rewards of goodwill. 
And some of them include things like the ability to sleep well at night. You're not letting the mind run rampant with thoughts of revenge or thoughts of how much you want to see so-and-so suffer and going into the details of how you would like to see them suffer. <laughs> you say, okay, goodwill for our beings is a lot easier to sleep. Your dreams are better. You wake up, it's easier to wake up. And also he gives the image of that. I told you earlier about the lump of salt. The lump of salt in the river. You can still drink the water in the river because it's not too salty. You try to develop that breadth of awareness which makes it easier to put up with the difficult things that are coming from your past karma. And that, keeping that thought in mind is a good motivation for why you want to develop these qualities. Because remember, when we talk about karma, it's not just what you were doing with other beings, it's also how you are shaping your experience right now, given the raw materials that are coming your way. So you want to shape it in a skillful way so that whatever negative things are coming your way, you, you know how to protect yourself from them and not suffer from them. So these are some of the ways in which the teaching on karma motivates you to develop the Brahma-viharas. It all comes out of heedfulness, the realization you want to act in a way that you can trust yourself. And that's one of the scariest things in the world. If you can't trust yourself, who are you going to trust? And can you trust yourself? You know, suppose society were to break down. No internet. <laughs> <laughs> Food is hard to come by. Clean water is hard to come by. Can you trust yourself to behave in a noble way? And if you've said, mm, I don't know, then you've got some work you've got to do. Okay. Any questions on motivation? What do you recommend for people who are with loved ones who don't see the goodwill in others and they're, they're talking that way and you're with these people all the time? That's when you have to have an internal generator that keeps saying, okay, I don't need to depend on their recognition to keep the, keep the goodwill going. But it means you do have to figure out, well, what is it that's keeping them from seeing this, what's keeping them from appreciating it? And see if you can get in one way or another. Because most people will have some opening at some point. And just keeping that point in mind, there must be some opening here. And however long it's going to take, it's like, I'm willing to be with this situation for a while and not demand that an, an instant you know, opening or an instant realization. Sometimes it'll take a while. But again, you've got to remember, okay, the, the most important thing for you is learning how to trust your motivation when dealing with that person. And so that's why you want to develop the goodwill. Now, as we're talking about, you can't really make your goodwill dependent on other people's goodness or even their appreciation. You've got to make this an internal sort of vow that you take for yourself. And this is an important quality, especially you know, when your society seems to be crumbling all around us. You don't want your goodness to depend on the fact, well, society's going well, then I'm going to be a good person. Society crumbles, my goodness crumbles. You don't want that. And so even in a situation like that where you're day in, day out with a person like that, you've got to figure out, okay, my motivation for goodwill does not depend on that person's appreciation. But it also means you have to be intelligent on how you express your goodwill. If you're leaving yourself open for that person to harm you, you've got to close those, op close those openings.
you've got to be a little bit more wary. One of the things that really struck me about my teacher was, in, in, despite all the very you know, deep goodwill I sensed in him, he was a very wary person around other people. Who he would open up to, what he would open up about. He wanted to know you a while before he started opening up. And he had very clear guidelines for people he would be willing to associate with and people he would not. And exactly how much it was, it was very much like, you know, Thai boxing is the national Thai sport. And it's that whole thing you don't leave an opening. It's interesting that that would be the way that they would go around internally. But even though there's goodwill, but you have to realize okay, just because I have goodwill for someone doesn't mean that they will treat me in the way that I feel I should be treated. There are people who see that you're kind, they may try to take advantage of that, so you've got to protect yourself. Does that answer your question? Yes? Sometimes my motivations are all mixed up. Mm -hmm. uh, this morning I noticed there were plants that were really wilting, a lot of them. And so I decided to water them, and I didn't have much time, but I did it. And when I thought about my motivation, um, the gardener is away. So didn't she ask somebody to water the plants? So who's not watering the plants? And by the time I finished, I thought, it works better if I just think of it as the plants needed water, and I watered the plants and left all the humans out. And it just felt really clean mm -hmm. and well-being. Well, again, this is part of your directed thought and evaluation inside. You're, you're going to direct it just to the needs that the plants have, or you're going to direct it, well, who's responsible here? And how are we going to take care of this? And how much ill will can I feed off here before I've had enough? <laughs> Question over here. Bhante, um, as you were talking before, a story just came to me, and uh, what I have read um, several months ago about um, the parents and with a child mm -hmm. in the desert yeah. and and they were starving and and they had to kill their child and yeah. eat mm -hmm. and that had somehow not that it disturbed me but I was just wondering what how would I have done it what would I have done it mm -hmm. and if it's that that what is it in the Brahma Viharas, you know, that, that, where does it, you know, apply and how does it apply? And that, that's a question has been, suddenly came up as you yeah. were talking. Okay, well the story is there for the purpose of the reflection you should have on food when you eat it. The Buddha is not saying that the parents behaved in an honorable way or the way that he would recommend. As far as the precepts go, you don't kill anybody, even if it means losing your life. I mean, it's one thing for all of them to die, and another thing for the parents to kill the kid and then survive based on that. Um, so I don't think he would have recommended that they do that. But he was saying your attitude towards the food that you eat should be the same as if this were your child that you had killed. Because you would not eat out of enjoyment, or you would not eat. It was simply to keep the body alive. So that when, when you're using these perceptions, make sure you use them in the right places. <laughs> because it's not a recommended course of action. Thank <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I, I knew a monk who lived with some hill tribes people in Thailand, and one day he heard this child crying in the village. And then two or three days later, the father brought the child, had a huge, horrible, infected wound. He'd cut himself with a knife. And he knew that the monk probably would have some medicine, so he took him to see the monk. And the monk did have the medicine for it, because in the village they didn't have any of this kind of medicine at all. And so after he cleaned the wound and everything, he asked the father, what would you have done if I weren't here? And the father said, well, the child probably would have died, but we would have made another one. <laughs> Very different from raising a child in America. <laughs> The question about, um, you talked earlier about kind of reframing difficult states of mind, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of hung up on this idea of spiritual bypass, mm -hmm. and when one can run into it, like for me, my Achilles heel is anger. Mm -hmm. So it feels important to uproot mm -hmm. it, and reframing it to me feels a little bit like I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to try to cultivate a more wholesome state rather than mm -hmm. I am going to deal with that and get into that. What's this about? You know. So I'm hung up there a little bit on that, if you okay. could help me. To, to uproot something like that, you need to develop the other states, the more wholesome states, to replace them. And so you say, as part of my strategy, for the time being, I am going to work on strengthening these other committee members. Um, and recognizing, okay, the anger's there, I'm not going to deny that, but I know that the, the, the way I've been thinking that's leading to that anger is not helping me. And so I've got to learn how to think in other ways. And you will find that part of the mind is going to resist. And now this is where the uprooting goes, happens. Part of you says, well, I really like that anger. Yeah. And then you can say, well, why do you like it? And it'll be quiet, it won't tell you. And then you have to be stubborn. Okay, if you don't tell me, I'm not going to act on anger. I'm just going to pretend like you're not there. And then, it'll, you know... <laughs> it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it's like... I shouldn't say this. It's like a marriage, you know? <laughs> Everybody has to plan the chess moves, you know, three or four, you know, three or four moves ahead of time. <laughs> but you've got to figure out, okay, I'm going to be stubborn for a while. And then eventually it will come up with one of the reasons why you really prefer thinking in that old way. And at first you say, oh, this new way is just too Pollyanna-ish and whatever, and then say, no, I'm actually benefiting from it. What, what benefit am I getting out of you? Well, I'm more realistic. Well, you know, it's your version of reality, there are other versions of reality. And back and forth like this. And then and finally something comes up and you say, oh, that's why I went with the anger. Got it. Thank Got you. It. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, All thank right. you. Okay. Go here first and then. Ajahn, can you talk a little bit more um, uh, between goodwill, ill will, and the, the example you provided earlier about boxing ring? Because, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm trying to defend myself, yeah. and you're, you know, got my hands up, and I already told this other person, I don't really want to box with you. Can you just leave me alone? Mm -hmm. And this person, I'm just a weaker party right now. This person is in a position of exercising control over me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just want to do the aversion right now of just, can you just give me some space? And this person's like, no, because I have control over you. Mm -hmm. And how, how, ill will, good will, what can I do? 
Okay, the goodwill for the situation there is, okay, there's something very unhealthy going on in the situation, it's not helping either of you. So, trying to change the situation is not expressing ill will for the person. And one of the first lessons they teach you in Thai boxing is how to back out of a situation. I'm trying to, it's not working. Okay, you need more techniques. <laughs> <laughs> Like when they demand to talk to you, I said, not now. <laughs> and stick with it. Or whatever else, you've, whatever else you can think of that would, would work. Okay, I will try to improve my techniques, um, but when I, but this uh, aversion of mine, right. mm -hmm. I'm trying to work on and, try, and I remind myself that, you know, this person has a good side, which I'm not seeing now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it exists, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is, mean, which is why you don't want to deal a death blow, death-dealing blow to the guy. Pardon? I, this is why you, why you don't want to deal a death-dealing blow to this person. So, okay. But, you know, um, it's, it's a horrible example of you know, what happened recently in, in D.C. They could have shot out the tires. Yeah. And so in some ways, some relationships, I mean, you can kill a relationship with certain remarks, and you don't want to kill this relationship. Okay? Find out where his tires are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what? Proverbially, yes, symbolically. Yes. And just and it, it's because you want to keep the relationship going. That's where the goodwill is. Now you are averse to the certain the situation right now, and you know you probably have a good reason for not liking it. But say, okay, I can't let my aversion get over take control. And this is where you have to work on the breath. So that you can maintain this sense of calm, center, while you're dealing with someone who's very difficult. And one of the nice things about working with the breath is it creates this kind of impervious energy field around you. You've got the breath filling the body, it's good energy, you're there and they can't penetrate. Thank you. You're welcome. When you said, when you're hungry, when you don't have water, <laughs> when you when you said when you are hungry and when you don't have water, can you still think and behave in the noble way? The question becomes like, what do you mean by that noble way? Okay, in a way that doesn't really harm the other person. You're not going to break your precepts. Right there is behaving in a noble way. You're going to be fair in your dealings with the person. Like the story that she was telling, like mm. in Veta, yeah. the mother and the father decides to kill the child and eat. Okay, well, that's not, that's not behaving in the noble way. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the reasons. I, and I had that question, like Buddha was supposed to have told this story, and I, why isn't it questioned? Why didn't nobody question Okay, this? he told it for a different purpose. He was not giving an example, this is how parents should behave, you know, if they're in difficult situations. He's saying, suppose this happened, and they did make baby jerky. <laughs> That's what it says in the sutta, they dried the meat and they, you know. <laughs> now, and how, what would their attitude be towards the food as they were eating it? 
Would it be like us going down to a restaurant and saying, oh, this is excellent food, let's order some more chicken or, curry or whatever this other kind of stuff is, without really thinking about the fact something, you know, a deer animal died for this meat. Now, if you, that's what you, all you had to eat, you'd have to eat, as he said, they would be eating the meat with, with tears in their eyes, that they had done this. There would be no enjoyment in the food. So he's giving an example of how you should regard the act of eating physical food. That was the purpose for the story. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. So, is it, sorry. Is, it, is it safe to say that the, uh, these developing these Brahma Viharas outward is, is also, there's also the need then to develop them in, inwardly? Well, you're one of all beings, yes. Well, you know, you know it, it seems that um, in our culture, it's rampant that many of us, you know, have these really negative attitudes within of, of ourselves, and um, I think that's even been commented on, maybe the Dalai Lama or somebody said that we're shocked that uh, Westerners feel this way about themselves, but it, it seems um, likely that, that we would need to begin within a lot of the this work of, you know, a bad day and where nothing's happening right to really reframe Say well, I did something right. You know, I, I got up, whatever. And so, is that is that true? It yeah, works it, the it, same it way. Applies, it applies to everybody, including yourself. Now, the thing about the negative feelings that people have, there are two things I've observed after being in Thailand. One is that you know, in Thailand there was a shame culture. Here we have a guilt culture, or we had a guilt culture. Um, we've done a pretty thorough job of erasing the guilt culture, but now we have a shame culture. And you see the difference between teaching people in your generation and people in the younger generation? By and large, the younger generation has less trouble feeling goodwill about themselves because it's a shame culture rather than a guilt culture. It's very hard to make you know, Gen X people feel guilty, but you can make them ashamed really easily. Raised eyebrow. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a generalization, but, and, and there are going to be changes, but I think the culture has changed. On the other hand, though, there is a whole problem of what TV advertising has done to people's self-image, and that's rampant across the board. And I saw that change in Thailand as it was happening. When I first went over to teach English, the college students were just the sweetest kids, really nice, very happy to help. Um, and then within a, within a you know, span of ten years, TV came with all, all the advertisements and everything, and the teenagers all turned sullen. And it was all about, you know, like I'll give you an example, there was a teacher who used to bring her students to work at the monastery, and the first couple of years it happened, the kids were there and they're helping with all the projects around the monastery and seemed really eager to help. And then as time wore, wore on, they got less and less and less willing to help. Until the last group came and said, do we have to? They wanted to go to Pattaya. <laughs> and so I said, no, you don't have to. No, you don't have to do anything at all. But it was that, that attitude had really changed as TV came in. And you know, people were given this image of this is what you should be and this is what you should have. And the really happy people look like this. And you don't look like this at all. But we can sell you something to make you look like this. And that has a very negative effect on people's self-image. And so you do have to undo that. As I said, you just thinking about the good things you've done and the good qualities you have. That's an important process.
Yes. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, recommend some sutras or something that talk about discernment. Because when I think about the Brahmaviharas, one often has these glorious ideas. <laughs> and you always feel that there is more room to be compassionate, more room to be generous, you know, more room to serve. <laughs> and but then clearly there needs to be discernment of how much, how much to give right, and right. how much you might be sacrificing and you know things like that. So does does the sutras talk about this? They they talk about helping other people and not harming yourself. And that comes into play when one of the, if you have a meditation practice, then that's one of your barometers right there. How is my meditation going? Do I do I have not enough energy to meditate? Something's wrong. I'm overextending myself. Or if someone is really taking advantage of your compassion, you say, okay, enough. This is this is not wise compassion. How do you know that someone's taking advantage of your compassion? It's a case by case. By case. And there, are no, I mean, there, there is a book in there called Discernment. It's just one of the books on the, on the shelf. By the way, please feel free to take all those books if you want. Because I've been told that they have too many of my books here at the center. So, <laughs> so if, you have a, if you have a group or something that you think would like copies, go ahead and take the books and <laughs> help clean them up. But there is one called Discernment there that, sh that help, should help to some extent. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's motivation. Oh, one more thing on motivation, one more question. Can you say a little more about the um, image of the um, Thai villager who um, commented that if the child had died, they would make another one? and how that's different from the Western thought. Um, I'm just interested how you interpret that and what there is well, about the, that. The, the father seemed a little bit more callous about the possibility of the child's dying. Um, and part of it was just you know, the fact he was in a very poor place with no medicine. This is, this is one of the attitudes you have to develop. Whereas here, you know, everything we can to protect the child because you can only have so many children. So it was just about what was realistic for the what villager to experience. Villager to do, yeah, yeah I mean, it seems a little callous, yeah. Yeah, but again, it's, as I said, for his, in his position, that was probably the attitude he had to develop. He probably already lost a couple of kids. Now, it used to be in Thailand, they wouldn't even name you until you'd turned six for fear of getting too attached. And in the meantime, they would give you a, a non-human name, um, not only to create that sense of distance, but also to fool the spirits. You know, if you called your child grub or worm, and these, are, these were com common names for little kids in Thailand, hopefully if the spirits were really dumb, they wouldn't recognize the fact that this was a human child. <laughs> okay. That has motivation. And then the final topic I want to talk about before we start getting into the readings is the means for developing the, these Brahma Viharas. In addition to having the motivation, how you use the different types of fabrication to 
create a sense of, well, of goodwill, create a sense of compassion. And so, thinking back on those three, excuse me, on the three types of fabrication, you've got the breath, which is bodily fabrication, how to breathe in a way that makes it easier for the mind to feel these attitudes. How you calm things down, where the tension, try to notice where the tension appears in your body when the ill will comes up, or the jealousy comes up, or the, the sense of attachment to something that you really should be learning how to let go comes up. How do you breathe through that in a way so that there's, there's no physical manifestation that's going to make it harder for you to develop a wise, the wise attitude? Secondly, the question is going to be how to think about things what ways you frame the situation in your mind. Again, thinking about that person walking across the desert, hot, trembling, and thirsty. It reminds you, okay, I'm in a position where I'm weak. I can't afford to have ill will. If I have ill will for this person, I'm going to be hotter and more trembling and thirstier. You know? I, need some, I need this other person's goodness to, as, a, as a nourishment for my goodwill. As opposed to, I'm sitting up here, I'm the judge in the situation, I'm way up here, that evil person down there is just this little tiny ant that if I wanted to step on, I could just step on him. If you, have, if you held that image in mind, your attitude towards judging the person and your attitude towards the person would be very different. So this is kind of a perception, a way of framing the issue in your mind, to remind yourself that even though someone may be behaving in a way that's really harmful to you, one, you step out of their, the, the range of their influence, but then you don't let that harm have an impact on your goodwill. So however you can frame the issue, and we'll, have, we'll look at some of these passages where the Buddha talks about ways of thinking about people who have been harmful, people that you hate, how this will change, change the situation so it's easier to feel goodwill for the person. What you're doing here is you're actually engaging in two aspects of the Buddhist path, right view and right resolve. They're both part of discernment, which I think is interesting. There is a relationship between wisdom, the wisdom of right view, and then the sort of more heart qualities of the Brahma Viharas, which comes under right resolve. Right resolve actually does come under one of the forms of right, excuse me, the Brahma Viharas are one form of right resolve, you know, the resolve on non-ill will and the resolve on non-cruelty. Actually, two aspects. This is where the Brahmaviharas fit into the Eightfold Path as a whole. And then that, in turn, influences the teachings on right view. Because when you think about it, there's, this, there's always this question of how do, how do the Brahmaviharas fit into the rest of the teaching? And there are two extremes. One extreme, I don't know if you ever saw the book, uh, What the Buddha Taught. And he talks about the, you know, everything in the Buddhist path comes under the Four Noble Truths. And then he tacks this other chapter on the end. By the way, we have these social values as well, which are the Brahma Viharas. And there's no sense that there's any relationship between the two. They're two totally divorced teachings. The other extreme was this, um, did you ever see the Buddha in the box? It was a little box about yay big, and it had a little plasticine Buddha in it. Were they selling those here about maybe 10 years ago? You've seen them, yeah. Did you ever read the little booklet behind the Buddha image about what the Buddha taught? And it talked about how on the night of his awakening, the Buddha awakened to four wonderful truths. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. <laughs> In other words, it becomes the whole teaching. You know? and 
I, I pointed this out to the editors of Tricycle one time. I said, you know, it would be great if you could do a review of this. And they looked at the publisher, and it was Chronicle Books here in San Francisco, and said, no, they're one of our sponsors. <laughs> so, I mean, there is... So you have two extremes. One is the whole, all the teachings are the Four Noble Truths and the, and the Brahma Viharas don't fit in. The other is all the teachings of the Brahma Viharas and the Four Noble Truths disappear. What you've actually got here, if you think about it, why did the Buddha focus on suffering as his main topic if it wasn't goodwill? Goodwill for himself, goodwill for all beings. He saw that people were causing themselves to suffer. And this, is the tech, this is the view you need in order to put an end to suffering. Now, after he began to awaken, he could have taught anything, you know. He could spend all of his time, like I spent my lunch hour here talking you know, ghost stories and things. <laughs> it would have been a waste of time. He said, this is something that would be really useful, and why is it useful? This would really help people. He's, the whole motivation for the Four Noble Truths is goodwill. And the Four Noble Truths, on the other hand, remind you, okay, when you're with your goodwill for other beings, you do have to have a clear sense of cause and effect. What ways of action really will act towards people's well-being, and your well-being included? Which ways will not? And so the two qualities of right resolve and right view, or wisdom and the Brahma Viharas, feed off each other in this way. In the same way that when you're fabricating experience, that's related to the fact that, as I said, when you're fabricating experience, your intention going into the experience is going to be informed by your views. And the type of views you're going to use are the one have to be, in the case of the Four Noble Truths, these are motivated by, by your desire for happiness. So the two things go, go together. And it's in this way that the head and the heart work together in a positive way for your happiness and for the happiness of others. It keeps you on the path. Anything on that, those, those thoughts? Yes. Yeah, it would seem to me that um, the Brahma Viharas also come in in the um, path of um, right intention. That's right resolve. It's the second factor. That's, that's the way I called it. it was oh, right resolve. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's look at the readings. The first section under basic principles deals with the Buddhist teachings about the mind and the universe as a whole. I included the first passage here. This Brahmin cosmologist, Lokayata goes to the Buddha and says, he asks him, does, it, does everything exist? And he says, everything, everything exists is the senior form of cosmology, Brahman. Then Master Gautama, does everything not exist? Everything does not exist is the second form. Then is everything a oneness? No, notice this. We all, we're often taught that the Buddha taught that everything is one. And here he's basically putting aside, he says, that's a third form of cosmology. And then is everything a plurality? That's the fourth form of cosmology. So avoiding these two extremes, the, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. Then he goes through dependent core arising. So that just this was to alert you to the fact that the Buddha does not side with the idea that everything is one. 
And he also doesn't decide with the idea that everything is a plurality. He, that's one of those questions he just puts aside. So when we're thinking about why to develop the, the Brahma Viharas, when you think about, well, the oneness of all beings, doesn't fly. It doesn't fit in with the original teachings. Passage number two deals with this fact that the mind is so quick to reverse itself. He says, I don't envision a single thing that is as quick to reserve, reserve, reverse itself as the mind, so much so that there's no satisfactory simile for how quick to reverse itself it is. <laughs> now here we're talking about someone who is a master of similes. And even the Buddha was speechless. <laughs> I mean, even, even the flash of an eye is too slow for how quickly your mind can change. So this, is, this offers both some danger and it offers some potential. I mean, if you've got some unskillful habits going, you can change them. If you have some skillful habits going, though, you've got to protect them. And this, this, the teaching on mindfulness, this is you know, where, the, where you just allow things to arise and pass away. The Buddha never taught mindfulness that way. He said, you know, when mindfulness is in charge, mindfulness will try to give rise to skillful qualities and will try to end unskillful ones. So it's not just sitting back and watching the show. It's actually getting involved and trying to maintain the skillful qualities and get, get rid of the unskillful ones. Because if you don't do that, this changeability of the mind is going to cause you a lot of trouble. Third passage. I can imagine your, your reaction to this. When he says, monks, have you ever seen a moving picture show? <laughs> and you say, wait a minute, 2,500 years ago? <laughs> Turns out they did have moving picture shows. They weren't set up quite the way we set them up now. <laughs> what they had was a lamp, and they'd have these big, it was almost, I don't know how they got it, it was kind of like cellophane, I think it was something that was made out of gelatin. And then they would paint pictures on them, and they'd have a blank wall. Now for instance, you know, where Don is sitting right now, they'd have the lamp, and then when you're sitting, they'd have these cellophane things that they put in front of the lamp, and then they would cast its image on the wall behind. And so you'd have the scene, which would be one large frame, and then you'd have these little characters running around. And that was, you know, that was considered you know, the most sophisticated form of entertainment back in those days. And so, but they did have them. <laughs> and so he says, the moving picture show is created by the mind. And this mind is even more variegated than a moving picture show. Thus one should reflect on one's mind with every moment. For a long time has this mind been defiled by passion, aversion, and delusion. From the defilement of the mind are beings defiled. From the purification of the mind are beings purified. Okay, it's the quality of your mind that you've got to watch out for, and particularly any passion, aversion, and delusion is going to darken the mind. Because the mind is capable of anything. Then he makes a similar point, the one that I made earlier this morning. Monks, I can imagine no group of beings more variegated than that of common animals. Common animals are created by the mind. In other words, each animal's body is the result of that, that animal's karma. You think about it. You know, what kind of karma goes into being a goose? Or goes into being an elephant? Or goes into being any kind of being at all? I mean, there's just lots of variegated karma out there, and that means people have been creating all kinds of karma. Beings have been creating all kinds of karma. So these things have come from the mind, yet the mind is even more variegated than common animals. It's, it has all kinds of potentials. Again, another another reason for heedfulness.
passage 4. This is the question that Jeff raised. Luminous monk says the mind is defiled by incoming defilements. The uninstructed run-of-the-mill person doesn't discern that as it has come to be, which is why I tell you that for the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person there is no development of the mind. Then he says, luminous monks is the mind and it is freed from incoming defilements. The well-instructed disciple of the noble ones discerns that as it has come to be, which is why I tell you that for the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones there is development of the mind. It's because we, the mind, we realize that the mind can be purified, that's how we can train it. There has to be that conviction that you know, the mind is not so corrupt that it cannot be trained. So the luminosity here means its potential for being, for being trained. It doesn't mean any innate purity, but the fact that you can train it. You have to stop to think, you know, if you were innately good, then the question would be, well, why are you suffering? And you say, well, I forgot my innate goodness. You say, well, if you forgot your innate goodness, then when you remember it again, what's to keep you from forgetting it again? You know? So you know, the, the belief that the mind is innately good is not going to help you on the path. The belief that the mind is innately bad is not going to help you on the path either, because then you say there's nothing you can do. Every, all your intentions will be corrupt. And even your acceptance of someone else's guidance might be corrupt as well. So the Buddha puts both of these ideas aside. He said, says, okay, there are these qualities in the mind, there is this potential for knowing, and then you use that potential for knowing to train yourself based on the, what good qualities you can muster. Passage 5 is where the Buddha talks about heedfulness as being the root of all skillful qualities. And so this is where we're going to be looking for developing our, our the Brahma-viharas, which is realizing, okay, my actions are really important, I've got to make sure my motivations are good, that I don't want to harm anyone. Then passage 6, you know, I think we'll actually get all the way through all 20 pages. Passage 6, this is the scene I was telling you about earlier. King Basanity was together with Queen Malika in the Upper Palace. Then he said to her, Is there anyone dearer to you than yourself? No, Your Majesty. <laughs> the Pali Canon tends to be kind of terse. I can, I can imagine this. Um, she kind of looked at him first. <laughs> and then said, No, Your Majesty. <laughs> Well, remember, he's king, you know, and yes, he could have cut off her head, except for the fact that he really loved her, you know? but not more than himself. <laughs> so she says, no, Your Majesty, there's no one dearer to me than myself, and what about you, Your Majesty? Is there anyone dearer to you than yourself? Imagine speaking to a king like that. No, Malika, there's no one dearer to me than myself. So he goes down and sees the Buddha, and this is the Buddha's reaction. Searching all directions with your awareness, you will find no one dearer than yourself. In the same way, others are thickly dear to themselves. I like that adjective, thickly. Dear to themselves. So you shouldn't hurt others if you love yourself. That's an interesting connection. If you love yourself, don't hurt anybody. This is one of the motivations for developing the Brahma-viharas. 
It's the love you have for yourself. Passage 7 is the image of the acrobats on the bamboo, bamboo pole. So we, we, we've talked about the story that both of them had protect each other by looking after themselves. Then the Buddha goes on to make the conclusion. The establishing of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after myself. The establishing of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after others. When watching after yourself, you watch after others. When watching after others, you watch after yourself. And how do you watch after others when watching after yourself? Through pursuing the practice, through developing it, through devoting oneself to it. This is how you watch after others when watching after yourself. And this next one I think is interesting. How do you watch after yourself when watching after others? Through endurance, through harmlessness, through a mind of goodwill, and through sympathy. Now you could write a whole book on Dharma practice in daily life based around those four qualities. Your relationship with other beings. You have to endure harsh words, you have to endure difficulties. You make up your mind that you're going to be harmless, which is the equivalent of compassion. You develop a mind of goodwill and through sympathy. In other words, you try to get sense what that other person is feeling so that you can get some sense of what would be the appropriate way to treat that person. So these are the four things that basically go into Dharma practice in daily life. Any comments on that particular? You notice with the story with the acrobats was that for that particular situation, that the assistant was right, that you look after yourself and that will protect the other person. There are other times, however, where you have to go out of your way to help the other person, and in doing so, that's, when you're, that's, that's a way of helping yourself. And the distinction, the difference between sympathy, here's the word I think which is closest to kindness. The Pali term is anukampa. You, you really try to go out of your way to be kind to someone else. My mic just fell off my ear. It's not made for small ears. <laughs> the Pali word anukampa, which I've translated here as sympathy, is probably the closest to kindness in, in their vocabulary. Yes. I think anukampa is oftentimes translated as compassion and has some similar qualities to karuna. Could you comment on that? Um, karuna is specifically <coughs> for people who are suffering or are doing things that will cause suffering. Whereas compassion is simply, could you do me a favor? The, the way they use it in everyday life, it's kind of, could you please do this for me? And they say, anukampang upadaya. And we don't say, out of, would you compassionately pass the butter, you know? <laughs> but it's more, would you kindly pass the butter, you know? <laughs> but I thought the root of that word is tremble, and to tremble, the images of trembling with, so that you're kind of Tremble along, yeah. Um, again, this is why I translated it as sympathy. Because that's, that's specifically how, you know, that's the root for sympathy as well. 
The other thing, though, is when you're looking at these words, you can't just look at the root. I mean, think of what conscience would mean if we actually took it apart according to its roots. But sympathy almost has a connotation in English, I think, of, of pity. You know, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily, but mm -hmm. it, more so than compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you a few examples in Pali. It's usually when they're asking for someone, would you please do this for me? And like a case when a monk wants to be ordained, he basically, you know, asks the Sangha, would the Sangha please lift me up anukampang upadaya, out of sympathy, out of kindness. But it's also just the general way of saying please. So you have to, when you're, when you're looking at these words, you can't trust the, the Vasudhimaga and its roots and things. You have to look at the word in, in the context of the passages. So in all those passages where the, Buddhist, uh, the Buddha um, taught out of uh, sympathy mm -hmm. for beings, yeah. is that Anukampa? Yeah, it's Anukampa. Mm -hmm. Question over here. This is referring back to the previous passage where it says there is a luminous mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I'm wondering if this, if working with um, the conditions of ill will mm -hmm. and the condition of goodwill, if this is skill and means to get back to luminous mind. Um, he says there is a luminous mind. Like, is there a there, there also has been said in, this, in scripture there is. There is the unconditional. If there weren't for the unconditional, we wouldn't have relief from the conditional. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we're working with conditions here, skillful means mm -hmm. to kind of wash away um, the defilement. conditions so that it will reveal the unconditioned mind. Is that kind of the point of all of this? Well, the thing about the unconditioned, the, the voluminous mind is not the same thing as the unconditioned mind. Because you have to know that this there is this quality to the mind, this luminosity, that, that allows you to basically see what you're doing. You know, if the mind were totally murky, you'd have these act, you know, if everything were subconscious or unconscious, there'd be no way you could develop the mind. But there's a certain quality that you can learn how to actually see down into what is normally subconscious or normally unconscious. And that's how you can train it. So the luminosity means the ability of the mind to know things. It's not a reference to the purity of the mind. So pure, pure attention or pure awareness? It's just, there's just kind of a basic awareness there that allows you to see these things. And that's different than the unconditioned? That's very different from the unconditioned, yeah. There's a great passage where John Mahabha was talking about just this issue about the luminous mind versus the pure mind. He talks about how in his own practice he'd gotten to a point where everything, not only his own mind, but everything he was experiencing seemed luminous. He said, and his first thought was, this must be it. And so he just sort of stayed with that sense of luminosity. And after a while he began to realize that it kind of, the luminosity kind of faded and then came back and faded and came back. And it finally hit him, okay, if this can change this way, this can't be the unconditioned. And so he said, let's see if I can destroy my attachment to this. And so he, so he as he said, he destroyed it, whatever, however he did that. And then what came up as a result was, you know, then then he came across you know, the unconditioned mind. 
And then he said, looking back on that uh, luminous mind, he said, compared to the unconditioned mind, the luminous mind was, and he said this, literally, a pile of shit. Because <laughs> it looked really fine, really fine, but it still it was conditioned. There was something that was not quite, that required a lot of care and attention. And that's the difference between the luminous mind and the, and the unconditioned. So the point of the skillful means here of working with the Brahma Viharas is to... Get to the unconditioned. Get to the unconditioned, yeah. not to the luminous mind. Well, the luminous mind is maybe one of the way stations on the way. But it's, it's the unconditioned we're working for. Because the Buddha frames this in terms of, if you really want true happiness, this is where you go. You've got to attain this dimension. Now, he's, what he's holding and surprise for you is a lot of other good things about it besides just the happiness. But that's a big, that's a big selling point right there. <laughs> yes. So I think it's in the Potapada Sutta, in the mm -hmm. discussion of fourth jhana, mm -hmm. there's the simile of the white sheet um, that's very bright. That's luminous mind covering your whole body? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, how should one understand luminosity in that context? Real great clarity. The mind is just very, very clear. And your, your awareness of the whole body is very, very clear. Now, some people will sense light in their, in their concentration, yes. but not everybody. Okay, here's... Passages 8 and 9 talk about ways of being helpful both for yourself and for others. And basically, as you practice the Dharma, and you, other, you encourage others to practice in the same way. Because remember, you know, happiness is something that doesn't come just floating in. You wish goodwill to other beings, it doesn't mean they're going to be happy. What you're wishing for them is to understand the causes for happiness and to act on them. And one way you can help with that is being a good example yourself. By, by practicing these ways, for, for, instance, for instance, being consummate in virtue, consummate in concentration, discernment, release, knowledge and vision of release. If you can develop these skills yourself and then encourage others to develop those skills, because that's the best way that you can be helpful both to yourself and to others. The fact that you've developed the skill means that you can talk about it with, you know, with, with knowledge, rather than just say, well, I, I have heard, or thus have I heard. <laughs> it's okay, this is the way it is. And then the fact that you've done this, but you set a good example, that's a much more powerful teaching than just saying, okay, this is, this is what it says in the text. You actually try to embody this. And then finally, the encouragement you give to others is to say, look, you can do this too. It's possible for people to, to attain these things. And this is the best way of being beneficial both to yourself and others. Same with passage 9. You practice for the subduing of passion within yourself and you encourage others in that way. You practice for the subduing of aversion and delusion. This is one way of practicing for your benefit and for the benefit of others. Let's go into the expressions of metta. This passage 10 is probably the most famous passage on metta in the, pa in the canon. I'd like to talk about it a bit, because as we said earlier, this is one of those passages that 
John Peacock used, and Richard Gombrich uses to make the case that all you need is metta, and that'll get you all the way. Okay, this is to be done by one skilled in aims who wants to break through to the state of peace. <clears throat> Years back, I was sitting in on a class um, where a teacher was taking the, the metta sutta apart line by line by line. They got to that first line. This is to be done, and another translation was, this should be done. Hand from the back of the room. I thought Buddhism didn't have any shoulds. <laughs> and they spent the whole morning <laughs> on that point. And what's, what's so amazing about that idea is that th- there's another passage where the Buddha says, <clears throat> there are certain teachings that deprive you of any idea of what should and shouldn't be done. A teaching of total determinism, either that everything you've experienced is shaped by past karma, that leaves you without any notion of what you should or should not do, because everything is already determined. You can't help me, there's no way you can change things. The teaching that there's a God who created the universe and has ordained everything, um, unlike the Christian God who ordains everything except the stupid things you do. <laughs> I was up in Saskatoon last, this last summer, and there was this guy sitting in two or three seats away from me in the, in the lounge, and so he comes over, comes over to me and wants to know what this is all about, this, this robe. So I explained it to him, and he wants to know what Buddhism teaches about God, and I says, well, for us, God is an irrelevant question. And he said, oh, I, I couldn't live without a god. I, I, couldn't, I, I would be doing so much evil. And he was going around thanking people, and he thanked people for helping him in one way or another. He said, I, I see God acting through you. I see God acting through you. If he had said that to me, I'd say, you keep God out of this. I did this on my own, okay? <laughs> I don't understand this religion I was raised in. At any rate, this is what should be done by one skilled in names who wants to break through the state of peace. The Buddha should here is conditional. If you want to break through the state of peace, this is what you've got to do. Now, he's not forcing you. But he says, you know, if, if the teaching doesn't give you a sense of what should and should not be done, it leaves you unprotected. It gives you no basis for deciding what to do. So one of his ways of providing refuge to his students was to give a clear sense of what is skillful, should be done, what is unskillful, should not be done, and teaching you how to, you know, giving you some starter lessons on figuring out what's skillful and what's not, and then letting you work out the details yourself. Oh, and by the way, the third teaching that he said leaves you no sense of what should and shouldn't be done is when this says that everything is random, that there's no pattern at all. So, before you start practicing metta, these are the qualities you should, de- you should develop. Be capable, upright, and straightforward. Easy to instruct, gentle, and not conceited. That easy to instruct there is a really difficult one because a person who's easy to instruct on the one hand is someone who will take directions and also someone who knows how to think for him or herself. Now that's a hard combination. You get some people who say, just just tell me what to do and I will do it. (laughs) In fact, some people like to abandon all responsibility on the path. You just tell me what I need to do. And then the others who like to think for themselves, they don't want to take instructions. My teacher told a story one time about his relationship with the John Lee, which I think he told it to me because he could tell I was having trouble finding the right balance between being the independent-minded American and you know, the obedient student who would just do whatever he was told. <clears throat> so there was one time when they were building the um, ordination hall at Wasokanam, 
And ordinarily, when you build an ordination hall in Thailand, you have the Buddha image on the west wall facing east, which is symbolic of the, the Buddha on the night of his awakening. He was sitting under a tree facing east. And of course, the east is the symbol of the rising sun, the dawn of a new day. And so, when they made the cornerstone for the building, they put it on the west side. And then as they were building the building, John Lee changed his mind, decided he wanted the Buddha image on the east side facing west. And they've been talking about that ever since, why he switched the normal directions. This is the ordination hall in which I was ordained, by the way. But anyway, when they finished the building, and the Buddha image was in place over here on the east side, they suddenly realized all, that, all those sacred objects that they put in the cornerstone was, were, was under a spot where you could step over them, you know, which you, know, is, you don't do in Thailand. And so when they, when they realized that, John Lee turned to John Fleur and said, okay, tomorrow I'll get the monks down and move it to the other side. And then John Fung thought to himself, there is no way you are going to move that thing. It's, it's set in concrete and it's way too difficult. But he knew that if he said it couldn't be done, and John Lee said, well, I'll find somebody who does have the faith to do it. <laughs> so the next morning, John Fung went down, <clears throat> got all the able-bodied monks and novices in the monastery, and they got ropes and crowbars and everything. Spent the whole day tr in the mud trying to move this thing over to the other side. It didn't, it didn't budge. So that evening, John Fuang went back to John Lee and said, how about if we open up the old box, the cornerstone, make a new one over here, open up the old one, take all the stuff out of this one and put it in the new one over there. And John Lee said, okay, good idea. And then John Fuang said, that's how you show respect for your teacher. In other words, you do what you're told. If it doesn't work, you try to figure out what went wrong, make a proposal and then let, run it past the teacher. And if, if the proposal doesn't work, at least it shows that you put some thought into it. Rather than just come running back and say, it didn't work, you know, it's your fault. <laughs> so, that's, an, that's a lesson in how to be easy to instruct. <clears throat> be content and easy to support. Contentment here is primarily contentment with the physical objects in your surroundings. There's a passage where the Buddha says his his lack of contentment in terms of skillful qualities in his mind is what guaranteed his awakening. So we're not just sort of sit here, you know, my mind is in shitty shape today, I am just going to be content with that. Say, well, try to figure it out. What's wrong? Let's make some experiments. Don't just sit there and let it, things be awful. Have few duties, living lightly with peaceful faculties, masterful, modest, and no greed for supporters. And do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later censure. In other words, make sure you've got your precepts in line. And here we start. The problem, the thing about having few duties, you know, you have grandiose projects. That, you know, the people who come to you all of a sudden become means to that end over there. If you've got all these things you've got to do. Whereas if you're just there, you're dealing with people for what they need, it's a lot easier to actually do a lot of good. Okay, here comes the metta. Think, happy at rest, may all beings be happy at heart. Whatever beings there may be, weak or strong, without exception, long, long beings, of course, are snakes. Large, middling, short, subtle, blatant, seen and unseen, near and far, born and seeking birth. I think that's an interesting set of kind of qualities. Those who have already taken birth, i.e. those who are alive, and seeking birth, those who are, who are on the way between one life and the next. May all beings be happy at heart. 
back up a minute, this thing about not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later censure. You need to be virtuous so that your denial of past wrongdoing doesn't skew your understanding of the Brahma Viharas. In other words, for your Brahma Viharas not to be hypocritical, you have to lead a virtuous life as a basis for this. And at the same time, one of the, I was reading a, sign, a social scientist once say the same, there are five attitudes that are unhealthy to excuse past wrongdoing. You've got to learn how to avoid those by not doing the wrongdoing. Uh, one is that no harm was really done. In other words, I'm not responsible. In other words, the victim doesn't matter. Fourth one is the action served a higher purpose. And then the fifth one is, who are you to criticize me? <laughs> and so if you engage in unvirtuous behavior, you're going to be ending up doing that kind of sort of basically you know, corrupted thinking, or dishonest thinking, you're trying to excuse what you did. And when you try to excuse that, then all of a sudden that makes part of the, part of the world. The people you've mistreated, all of a sudden they don't matter or you, you claim to be not responsible for your actions, or you don't understand what harm is. In other words, the things we do to excuse past behavior get in the way of genuinely having the Brahma Baharas. And this is one of the reasons also why when they, then they talk about the idea of a kindness that needs to break a precept, you better view that with a lot of skepticism. And things say, you know, I had to kill or I had to have sex or something like this for a compassionate purpose. Um, did you read, I, I don't want to name names, but did you read that thing in the latest tricycle about sacred sex? Sacred sex between teachers and students. That was awful. Um. <laughs> yep. Can I bring the thing in closer to my mouth? Okay. Okay. Is this better? Okay. okay. The Buddha didn't have any use for the idea that you could compassionately break a precept. There are times when it's difficult to maintain the precepts and you see that some harm could be done if you maintain the precept without discernment. That what that means is you've got to develop the discernment to work your way around that. Years back I was talking about you know, the precept against lying as probably being the most important precept, the Buddha. And from the, in the Buddha's eyes that was the most important, where you don't lie, period. Um, and then people would come up with questions about, well, what about this, what about that, a situation like this or that. And it was interesting, when I was teaching in Massachusetts, the question was, well, what about your tax returns? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to support the war. And the question in, in Southern California was, how do I look in this dress? How do you respond then? <laughs> and everybody looks lovely in a dress, okay? Compared to what if they didn't have a dress on. <laughs> The next passage here is, I think, is especially interesting. Here's the Buddha's talking about not just may beings be happy, but may they 
act on the causes of happiness. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone ever anywhere, or through anger or irritation wish for another to suffer. So it's not just you're wishing for people to be happy, you're wishing for them not to act on the causes of suffering. You remember, these, these, everybody is a, is, is a responsible free agent. And it's not, you're not going to be able to make them happy, but you wish for them to understand the causes of happiness and act on them. Avoid anything that's going to cause suffering. So this is taking into consideration the, the, you know, the, the, the principle of karma, that simply wishing people well is not going to be enough to make them happy. You can't go around with a little wand and just put, touch people on the head. But you're wishing here that they would understand the causes for true suffering, <laughs> causes for true happiness, and act on them, and avoid the causes for suffering. Okay, it's on that, it's, if you look at these in paragraphs, we're in the bottom of page three, that little paragraph right next to the last one, it says, let no one deceive another. Got it? Okay. The next couple lines are some of the more controversial ones. As a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even though one should cultivate a limitless heart for, with regard to all beings. Now notice what this means. It does not say that you should love all beings the way you love your child. It means that you should protect your goodwill the same way you would protect a child. In other words, regardless of the situation out there, you want to maintain your goodwill. And you'll be willing to risk your life for that. Because otherwise you would say, well, how is a mother going to love everybody the same way she loves a child? It's impossible. But you can protect your mind state the same way, with the same care and the same devotion that you would give to a child. That's what the Buddha is saying here. With goodwill for the entire cosmos, cultivate a limitless heart, above and below and all around, unobstructed without hostility or hate. Whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is alert, one should be determined on this mindfulness. <coughs> notice, that, notice that choice of words. This is a determination. You've got to make up your mind, this is what you're going to do. Again, it's not something that just wells up naturally, because there are a lot of cases where it's, you have to really work at it. And it is a form of mindfulness, in the sense of keeping something in mind. Always keep in mind that this is what you, the motivation that you want to work on is for the well-being of all beings in the cosmos. This is called a Brahma avoiding or called Brahma Bihara here and now. And then there's the final paragraph, not taken with views, but consummate, but virtuous and consummate in vision, having subdued desire for sensual pleasures, one never again will lie in the womb. Okay, this, this last paragraph does not automatically grow out of metta practice. You can have lots of metta and still have very strong views, and you may not be consummate in vision. And you can still have sensual pleasure. You, know, you can still be have a strong desire for sensual pleasures. So this is what's added on top of the development of metta, to take you to. And when it says one never again will lie in the womb, that's a sign of non-return, <coughs> the third level of awakening. Excuse me. Yes. Is this a new translation that we've done? No, this is the translation we've used all along. Okay. Do you ever redo your translations? Do I ever redo my translations? 
When I have to, yes. <laughs> when it's appropriate, when I did something stupid in the first one, yes, I will, I will change them. But this one hasn't changed. Any questions or comments on that passage? Yes. I'd get the mic. In the first passage, you said something about contentment that I did not understand. Can you clarify? Okay, you can be, the Buddha wants you to be content with your physical surroundings as a practitioner. If it's good enough, you don't want to spend too much time making it better. Um, it says, for the monks, of course, this means being content with your food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, basically. On the other hand, when the Buddha said that the secret to his awakening was the fact that he was not content with the skillful qualities he had developed until he made his way all the way to awakening. There was no, part, no point where he would rest content and say, well, this is good enough. So there must be something better. And it was that search for something better that made it, you know, sort of brought the breakthrough. Because sometimes people have the idea of contentment means contentment with everything. Everything is just okay. I'm fine with the way everything is including the state of your mind. But you have to look into it. If the state of your mind is really a mess, say, I can't stay content here. Or even if you develop, you know, say, strong concentration, or any of the other things that come along the concentration, if you haven't been able to get rid of your defilements, you can't rest content. Yes? Where's the other mic? Where's the other mic? Okay. Ajahn, can you, just a few more words on with few duties. Having few duties. Basically it means, you know, here the Buddha of course is talking to monks, it means you don't have a lot of construction projects, you don't take on a lot of extra duties, you, you spend a lot of time, you know, most of your time meditating if you can. And because especially if you have lots of projects going, someone walks into the monastery and they become, you know, you can think about what can this person do with this project over here, rather than thinking about, okay, what, would, what does this person really need? And for a lay person? Lay person, that means if you're going to be taking on, say, um, you know, extracurricular activities, you have to ask yourself, okay, is this eating too much into my time and energy? Is this, my, is this a good form of generosity? or as with all forms of generosity, you have to, you give, but not to the point where it's actually harming yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hand here. Just following on to her question, in terms of, um, so meditation and practice can be, it, it feels like it should be done at work, or in mm -hmm. construction projects, or at work, mm -hmm. as well as sleeping, standing, all of them. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you define how, if your time is spent well, right, in terms of the activities and busyness that he... You've got to look at the quality of your mind as you engage in the, and the, engage in the activity, and you find that, hey, your mind is doing well, it's in good shape, your concentration is strong, then you're not overextending yourself. But you begin to find, you know, you come home and you try to sit and meditate, and then you wake up an hour later, and not <laughs> then you know you're overextending yourself. Mm 
Here, pass the mic back. In paragraph eight and nine, you're talking about um, encouraging um, others to be mm -hmm. consummate in virtue mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. concentration, mm -hmm. etc. And that's a virtue to do that. Mm -hmm. You have to know time and place. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> you have to know time and place. Can you talk more about that? Okay, if you tell your parents they need more concentration, they're probably not take it very kindly. Or your child. Well, no, your child. You've got more rights over your child than you think. Okay. <laughs> um, but again, so you have to know how to present it to the child in such a way that they will find it attractive and not rebel. Do you have advice about that? Don't. You can't meditate until you get old enough. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the child's old enough. Teenager. <laughs> well, you, 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 can, you can determine the age. <laughs> but, but the, I mean, you should know your child and what, what works and what doesn't work, right? What normally works with your child? Sitting down and reasoning? Or telling him he can't do something to, in order to encourage him to do it? My mother kept encouraging me to read Catcher in the Rye for years. <laughs> And you know, I got to the point where I would never read anything she recommended. So, you know, I didn't read it until I was a junior in high school. So, what else works for you or a child? Finding time. That there's, it's very hard to find time in this um, crazy culture with all the homework and lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you trouble with too much homework and lack of sleep, say, look, your homework is going to go better if you sit down and just stay very quietly with your breath for ten minutes before you crack the books. And if you find that you're having trouble memorizing or whatever the homework involves, stop and take a meditation break. And you may not want to call it meditation. I taught my father a lot of, a lot of Dharma with, without mentioning the B word. You know. and that was the only way he was going to take it. So just say, look, this is a really good, this is a really, really good technique for getting better at your homework and being more refreshed at the end of the end of your work. It's just taking little meditation breaks. That'd be one 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 way I would do it. There's a question here, yes. Um, on the passage as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, um, the alternative uh, image is the first one that comes up. Uh, and, and you you offered the the other one which is to, to think of um, really, um, even so should one protect a limitless heart. Right. So it's really the key is that translating the word cultivate as protect. Right. Now, could you say more about that? Okay, it's, um, you risk your life to protect your child. Someone's, she, it, sometimes that protect is translated as cherish, and it's not. Cherish is a totally different word, because you're protecting your child, and the same way that you would protect your child you cultivate that heart. In other words, you think of a mother with, your, with your, your first baby. Every night you're up there with a kid, looking after the kid. Make sure nothing happens, it doesn't stumble, it doesn't you know, swallow things. And you're, you're spending a lot of time paying attention to that. And the same way you want to pay that much attention to your goodwill. 
so that when you're dealing with a difficult person, okay, this, this is my goodwill here, I can't let this difficult person harm my goodwill. So it's, it's, it's very important that you get those, those lines right. Because otherwise it sounds like a kind of a nice, vague, sentimental idea. Well, love the whole world the way you would love your child, and you say it's totally impossible, but it's a nice idea, but it's totally impossible. But, but isn't that an ideal to set? <laughs> if, you, if you set ideals that you can't attain, it's not really good for you, because then the question is, how far do I go? But, then isn't, it, I... but isn't it similar to say the ideal that's set in the, um, uh, I forget the name, the name of the sutra, that, that you should have a limitless heart towards the, 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 the bandit who cut your, cuts, cuts your arms and, and your, your legs and is about to kill you, to have the same... If you've really trained yourself in goodwill, you can do that. So, so then that's a high standard, isn't it? The same standard. high standard to set, to, to love the whole world as, as a mother would love the child, isn't it the same way? Well, that, that's an impossible standard. There are high standards and impossible standards. Here, the high standard is you've got to protect your goodwill the same way that a mother would ch protect her only child. And if you go through the day, you will notice that there are times when you've forgotten about your goodwill. And think about that, I've just abandoned my child. And that's a high standard right there but it's attainable. There's a question here and then one back there. This is actually to continue Nikki's line of inquiry. Mm -hmm. I had seen the pivot in that passage from the way it's typically interpreted a little bit differently, mm -hmm. which is um, that it's pointing to a focus on the state or the cultivation as opposed to any of the objects. So that I believe if I, my interpretation of what you're getting at is that if we focus on maintaining the attitude and the process mm -hmm. of goodwill, that anything that arises in that field will then, at least more likely, but very likely, be responded to with goodwill, which is another way of framing all experience. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you say, okay, I've got to maintain this attitude of goodwill despite whatever else is happening outside. Right. And anything that would come and, and uh, you know, cause a, a, a lapse in the goodwill, which could either be outside or inside, right. I've got to make sure I can protect that. Right. And this is why we have to have these all this directed thought and evaluation and hold the right perceptions in mind as a way of maintaining that goodwill when it gets difficult. So it's maintaining um, very much of a focus on the process rather than the objects. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to maintain this attitude. Okay. That's closer to my understanding of unspecific metta. I'm not sure what specifically is referred to in the Pali in the Metta Sutta, but it's good to um, unspecific metta. Unspecific. Okay, unspecific Odinasa. metta. That's is that right? Um, that's, it's not in the suttas, it's more in the commentaries. I see. But, I know, but when you're making it limitless, it becomes what they call apamana or apamanya, and that's what you're maintaining. Thank you. Okay. Question back here. So uh, you mentioned that uh, not lying is a very important precept to mm -hmm. adhere to. Mm -hmm. uh, could you elaborate more on uh, how lying affects the quality of our mind? Because sometimes we do, you know, like, we don't speak lie, but sometimes we just 
you know, exaggerate things or we uh, don't speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all different forms of lying in some ways. And sometimes we do it not because uh, uh, we want to lie, but sometimes we think that it, the truth might be harmful or might... So, you know, we come across these situations quite often in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the guiding principle when such The a guiding principle is that you do not misrepresent the truth. Now, there may be certain things that you just don't talk about. And you know, when, they, when, they, when you go into court, they say, you'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Buddha's not asking you to tell the whole truth, okay? What you say is accurate as far as you, your, what you said. But you may decide that there are certain topics that it's better to avoid. But you don't misrepresent, this, this, the words that come out of your mouth do not misre- misrepresent the truth. And the reasons for that is one, one point where the Buddha says, if you feel no shame at misrepresenting the truth, there's no evil you will not do. That's the, sign, the sense of shame around this. Now, the, when you lie to people, I mean, you're giving them misinformation. And they are going to act on that. And they could, they could cause themselves and a lot of other people a lot of harm based on that misinformation. When they find out that you've misinformed them, they will never trust you ever again. Those are some of the, and then your own mind. You, okay, if you've told one lie, let's say you told one lie to this person here, another lie to this person over here, and then you forgot. Oh my gosh, which person did I tell which lie to? And then you then you've got to maintain that lie, and the other person has been talking to this person, so you've got to keep the lie going over here, and this lie has to keep going over here, and then finally the two versions will meet someplace, and you know there's an awful lot of thinking that goes into that, whereas much less thinking goes into let's just tell the truth. It's a lot easier for the mind to concentrate. And then, of course, the issue always comes up as to, well, suppose you're hiding Jews in your attic and the Nazis are knocking on your door. And I've always wondered why people bring that up, because how many times in your life have you had Nazis? (laughs) 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 And it's usually for the purpose of excusing some other lie that... And I must admit, you know, the Thai way of dealing with the Nazis is the Nazis take over your town, you got Jews in your attic, you go down, you make a donation to the Nazi party, you hang out with the Nazi guys for a while. They come to your door and they say, we heard some noises coming from your attic. Oh, you expect, you, you, you doubt me? If you want, go ahead and go look. That's much more likely to protect the Jews than to say, no, I have no Jews here at all. <laughs> I guess the tricky point is, and I, I think the last time this, that scenario came up, you said you would kind of, and you didn't word, use the word hedge, but you kind of talked around it, um, you know, answering the, the Nazis, for example. But the tricky point is, uh, when does it become a, a lie by omission? You know, when, you know, you don't tell the whole truth, of, of course. So you, you, have to look at your, you have to look at your intention. If you're telling a lie of omission for the harm of somebody, that's basically against the Dharma. But if you're telling it, as you say, to protect somebody, it, you know, you know, did you see my, my husband out with another woman last night? And suppose you did. 
บริษัทเราไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้ไม่ได้